We're back. We are back live with Mr. Uh, Height. How tall are you? I'm actually six foot. Six on the dot? Yeah, like right over. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm totally six foot as well. Yeah, this I'm, is actually six eight for you listeners at home that haven't seen me. I'm actually nine foot twenty-two inches tall. It is terrifying. It's, Mitch it's, looks it's, like an avatar. I yes, and I have the skin color to match. It is incredible. Blue. See blue. blue. I told Mitch he should seek medical professional help. Nah, nah, nah. I'm not, I'm he not. insists that it is mostly just uh, just pigment. So. No, I've just been eating a lot of um, gobstoppers from Willy Wonka. So it looks I'm, good on you. Yes, you know, you eat one, you turn into a blueberry. You eat two, you turn into an avatar. You, eat, you eternally become this yes. pigment of. Wonderful blue. And if you eat three, you turn into Ronnie Coleman. So you're almost there. Almost there. Almost there. Lightweight, baby. Ain't nothing but a peanut. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to put in the work. Yeah. <laughs> nobody. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Strong Talk, um, the premiere and only podcast yes. <laughs> of Fort Worth Strong, <laughs> and today we are joined by the, I gotta get better, or just faster at coming up with these sort of stupid, hilarious... Yeah, your little quips of introduction. My little, my little quips of introduction, but we are joined by the master of sports psychology himself, <laughs> Nick Hyde. That is not Nick. A, how are that you? is not a self-deemed name, but I'm doing great. <laughs> it is in no way accredited yet, no, but yeah. and we can actually talk about that. We can talk but about yes, that um, Nick, how are you today? I'm doing exceptionally well. How are you doing? Excellent. I too am doing exceptionally well. I'm glad so, to hear it. So diving right in. Yeah. How would you define sports psychology? Um. <laughs> So how would I define it versus how would many of the leading people in the field define it? But, but what I would define it as based off of the true definition, but also what um, you know, all of my training and schooling has put me in a position to understand sports psychology as is the psychological components that rely around both the um, physical and mental aspects of activity. Mm. And you know, so obviously, taking sport in a context, um, that term has evolved as has the field of sports psychology. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to, to keep it quick, I would, I would consider it that. And then from there, there is a pretty deep and dynamic amount of delving that you can do to mm -hmm. both discuss the relevance of, you know, what is psychology in the terms of athletics and mm -hmm. how does that affect who athletes are and who coaches are? How do we deal with those things? Um, yeah. And things of that likeness. And are there different or dedicated subsects of sports psychology, much like psychology where you have cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, all yeah. of these different types. Is that apply to sports psychology as well? Yes. So, yeah. So with sports psychology, uh, like any other field of psychology, you do have certain dimensions, um, mm -hmm. you know, so you know, you have the, your, your cognitive component is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, one that you can assess and then, you know, so yeah, it, it is very much like any other field. I would say a, a big difference is that the field of sports psychology, when when speaking in relativeness, is a relatively newer field. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you when you begin to get into how exactly you define it, how exactly you assess athletes in you know evaluating psychology, um, yeah, it, it definitely becomes something where the field is, I would say constantly evolving um, mm. as far as the terms of what is expected and you know how exactly do we relate things from you know the the current literature of you know like the DSM how, mm -hmm. how do we relate that to the population of athletes um, because yes athletes are people but mm -hmm. there are different things that we deal with in everyday life and at different levels your mm -hmm. athlete that plays uh, professional women's soccer is going to deal with very different um, both you know, life situations mm -hmm. and also different conditions as an athlete than mm -hmm. would be your, you know, little league baseball player. And there's yeah. a lot of different fields of influence from parents to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you get into the professional league, you start looking at the, the 
impact of financial requirements that mm-hmm. need to be met by your profession. So, yeah. you know, you definitely cross these different lines of, okay, well, no longer is this recreational, but now this is actually the means to my existence. Mm-hmm. And um, you deal with a lot of different identifying components of, well, how do I safely identify myself within this sport without allowing sport to become my entire identity. Mm-hmm. Um, because even within that, there are a lot of issues that you see. So it, yeah, there, there's absolutely levels to how you assess it. Um, just as there would be with any other field of psychology. And I think too, a question I have is how do athletes and as an athlete yourself, how do you sort of navigate the, that specific understanding of, oh, now, now that because this sport or this particular thing that I've devoted my life to has become such a part of myself, how do I navigate my identity surrounding that while still existing inside of what all sports and professional settings are um, results-driven? Because it can be one thing to have a really great mental... Um, opinion of ourselves or a mental state of how we approach sport but when you then are bombarded by people are like yeah but you still lost or yeah this that this that champion mindset uh, all this kind of stuff how do you tell people how to navigate that i and so i mean how i tell people is Mm -hmm. again how you know everything that i have been taught and instructed about this specific topic um and i'll you know i'll accredit a lot of the staff at the university of north texas and texas a&m have both been um largely developmental in um what i know you know i mean they've they've provided me pretty much everything that i Mm -hmm. know in the in the context of being able to speak with and you know i i by no means am i a you know, accredited psychologist, but Mm -hmm. I am somebody who, like you said, I I am an athlete and I do spend a lot of time working with athletes. So Mm -hmm. in the profession that we work, it's not something that we should by any means claim uh, mastery of Mm -hmm. in in the sense of, you know, we should never be the one to speak to an athlete. uh, Again, unless you are fully accredited and have, have gone through sort of that vetting process to be able to say, yes, I am an expert on this. Mm -hmm. And uh, here is every reason why, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it becomes a task of being careful to advise, but as far as identifying or helping other people find that identity, mm-hmm. a really big component is that you cannot find your identity in sport. Mm-hmm. It, that can't be mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. There are, you know, phenomenal pieces of, uh, you know, research and, and also just things that we are able to evaluate that show the level of success of an individual, especially when we speak on terms of, um, you know, how do we succeed socially, you Mm -hmm. know, just as an individual who is going to be capable of interacting and, and actually forming that identity is that those who rely solely on a single sport to find their identity have a much harder time, especially when that sport does end. When you look at Mm -hmm. the, the actual numbers of people that make a profession out of uh, a a single sport that they participate in, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very few and far in between. Mm -hmm. So what you do have is a population much like myself and much like many people that we work with that Mm -hmm. have a passion for what they do, but do have to find their identity elsewhere. You know, so for, for me... I always loved football. I always loved Mm -hmm. track and field. I played baseball. I played soccer. I played basketball. I did gymnastics. I I have always been a very active person. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially as a child, it was very important. And again, this this does fall back onto the actual principles of when if you are a sports psychologist and you Mm -hmm. are working with teams or if you're just a coach in general or you're a mentor you need to help lead these individuals especially children when they're in Mm -hmm. such a important and impactfully developmental period of their life Mm -hmm. you have to guide them to understand that there should be an interest in exploring and trying many things and children in in nature are Mm -hmm. very inquisitive Mm -hmm. you know you would know that if you've spent any time with a child between the ages of three and seven you know mm-hmm. they they want to know everything about everything and that is incredible it's 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 beautiful and it should be highlighted and it should be an encouraged mm-hmm. that they do that mm-hmm. um where you you find a lot of these issues with where when athletes do end up halting their um i, I would say 
competitive athletic career, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so people that, you know, may even play up to the level of, you know, Division One mm -hmm. or, you know, a very high performance level outside of that. It could be a club or mm -hmm. whatever whatever that affiliated, you know, sports organization is. Um, you, you find that a lot of people that have solely identified with that sport for their entire life have a very hard time going into both the social world and the professional world mm -hmm. and being you know, what we would consider successful in the terms of, you know, kind of like a survival versus thriving terms, mm -hmm. you know, are you just barely making it through your everyday or are you, are you, you know, doing a good job of, um, integrating into society as it is, because what you'll find is that part of what makes the world of sports beautiful is that they're, there can there can be a different set of rules to it absolutely you know obviously these sports and games are played by a set of rules but sometimes when people isolate themselves to it mm -hmm. they dissociate from the actual commonplace mm -hmm. actions that take place in society where mm -hmm. it is not always this or that um so that that lies very largely in how forming your identity occurs yeah and i think with sports are a tool yes of discovery, a tool of problem solving, a tool of cooperation and teamwork yes. and um, setting and achieving goals. And I think with any type of tool, it can become challenging when we focus so much on the tool itself versus understanding that it is a tool and it works for us and it works yeah. for us to discover more about our experience. Yeah. And I also think, too, there is a lot of... Um, maybe not pedigree, but certainly history, I think, when it comes to how people who are taught now and who are competitive athletes now are coached by people who maybe perhaps had a lot of their identity wrapped up in the yeah. sport. And so, as the phrase goes, hurt people hurt people, I think. Yeah. Wounded coaches who sort of had this feeling of, oh, I could have gone pro if X, Y, Z didn't happen, or, oh, I could have made a living out of this, but now I'm stuck here coaching these people, yeah. and that sort of... Mm, perpetuates perpetu the Yeah, perpetuates this sort of um, unhealthy approaches to sport. Yeah. What is the most surprising fact about sports psychology that you didn't know prior to, or now it's like your favorite thing to sort of lean on and tell people about? Well, I think, man, that's a hard one. I, I, in in terms of this conversation, at least what we're talking about right now, I think one of the biggest things, especially when we talk about how the formation of identity occurs, is looking at the role that parents and coaches play. You were just talking about it. Maybe that's why it's on my head right now. But, you know, when, when so there, there have been a number of surveys that have been conducted through populations of adolescent athletes. And... What you see is that when when presented a a whole slew of reasons why children and adolescents participate in sports, um, and and I and I do lean on children, you know, being at the much younger, you know, between the ages of five and no older than ten most times, um, the reason that they participate in sport is because it is fun, mm -hmm. because they enjoy doing an activity, mm -hmm. and so. You know, one of the most dangerous things that I recognize is that as as parents and as coaches are these people that both instruct and facilitate the environment mm -hmm. for sport, mm -hmm. um, it falls on us to be very aware of why the children are participating in what they're doing and what exactly is happening and mm -hmm. and then from there i would say in the grander scheme of things as we deal with that you can also even relate a lot of this into as a lot of these athletes develop into um athletes that, that may pursue a you know a division one opportunity or 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 i'm not even going to limit division one any collegiate opportunity where now there is a much higher stake to the sense of competitiveness and then going beyond that to professional levels um you know there are definitely impacts that occur based off of how that participation and enjoyment for sport is facilitated. Mm. Are you the coach that is only demanding an expectation of, 
um, you know, wins? And is is that the only result that is attainable for that child to be valued? Mm-hmm. Because going forward, that child will become an adult, and that yeah. child will become an adult that has its own thoughts, its own beliefs, and its mm-hmm. own practices mm-hmm. for how things occur. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. you, we are seeing the impact of that in these older athletes where. And, and I'm, I'm very thankful of it because psychology and mental health is becoming a conversation point now. Mm-hmm. We saw that recently in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, and that, and I was, I loved it. It was huge. You know, it was mm-hmm. huge to see such a fantastic Olympian an, an athlete that will be regarded, you know, through the history of sport for the rest of time mm-hmm. who said, I am not only a competitor and I am not okay at the moment. And I mm-hmm. have other things that I need to prioritize to take care of before I step on the mat. Um, you know, so yeah, that was that was a very long answer to everything. But but I think really the thing is that the sport, the the field of sports psychology and the psychology that surrounds sports. One of my favorite things about it is that we are finally becoming more open to discuss it, and we are recognizing that uh, performance is not solely a physical thing, mm-hmm. and that. It doesn't matter how much you bench press or back squat or how fast you run or how quickly you swim, but you, there are other things that need to be taken care of and considered as we go through the experience of participating in these things. Yeah, and I think too that with that expansion of what sports psychology entails and the expansion and I think, yeah, realization of, especially with what Simone Biles has been yeah. um, advocating for, of athletes are still people, no matter yeah. what. No, even if we they can do these insanely inhuman things at times there's still the time when they're not yeah performing and exactly. there are times when they're not doing the thing that everyone wants them to do and in those quiet moments they're still human and they still struggle and still suffer and so i think understanding that athletes are still human and it's still treating them to that same pedigree and that same respect yes. is huge now because i think for a lot of like listening to God, you know, like Michael Jordan and interviews of Kobe Bryant and other elite athletes who are insanely, I shouldn't say insane, but incredibly dedicated to what they do. Yes. And understanding that that is also the 0.001%. And if you aren't in the 0.001%, that doesn't devalue your ability to be an elite level athlete or um, someone who can perform at a very high capacity. Yeah. And and it also goes to say that, um, I I mean, again, there is, everybody to a certain degree is, you know, dealing with these different points of finding identity and and finding happiness in life you know I, I think when you really zoom out of the big picture we're all um you know very alike in that sense but um you know there, there, there's just so many things to be considered when assessing okay well well this person can do it so why can't you you know what i mean it, it becomes very dangerous when we play this game of loose comparisons when there is so much context to be taken into consideration. And the fact of it also is that, un- unfortunately, athletes are always going to be under the radar, again, at, especially at a very high level, mm-hmm. are always going to be under the radar and under the, you know, the microscope, so to speak, mm-hmm. and are always going to have some sort of critique or evaluation placed mm-hmm. on them. And, that, and that's when they're doing extremely well. And unfortunately, it's also when they may not be doing as well. And it's, it's very hard. I don't, I don't know that there's any other field um, of profession where you are constantly either the hero or the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, well, and I, and I say there's none, none other. There certainly are others. But, you know, especially from that point of attention where your world is constantly shifting back and forth. That especially is when it becomes very important to uh, recognize that you can't hold your identity in Mm -hmm. the the sheer idea of performance. Yes. Because you're not Mm -hmm. always going to perform at 100%. Mm -hmm. And then again, for for every athlete, there is going to come a day when Mm -hmm. the cleats or the uniform or whatever do get put away. And yeah. you are going to have to have something that within your identity you can rely on to allow you to live a life beyond mm-hmm. the period of duration of your sport. Yeah, and 
I think to uh, a sort of popular opinion that I struggle with now. I used to be like this as well, um, but now I'm really struggling with this idea of the notion of, oh, you all you do is pick up a ball and throw it really hard, so you're not entitled to opinions about politics or social yeah. social causes or anything like that. Like you have no sort of you have no clout when it comes to these types of things because all you do is play a game that kids play, but yeah. you play it for all of this money. And I, I really struggle and disagree with that because I think the, to get to the level that these athletes are operating at where people now listen to them and their opinion about these things, it's this interesting situation where it's sort of the same end goal for all of these people, professional athlete. Yes, but how people get to that place is so wildly different. Yeah. And you don't like you look at an athlete and you think, oh, I have no idea what their upbringing was like. Yeah. It was this was sport something where they felt the most at home or they were in a situation where going home was even worse for them. And right. so the dedication that they brought to the sport wasn't from a place of genuine love, but from a place of survival, like yeah. you were saying. And so how do you, how do I then reckon with that of like, this is something that someone used to survive in their life. And now I'm saying, yeah. oh, everything that you've done up until this point doesn't matter because it's simple air yeah. quotes, because it's just a game or something and, like and that. It's yeah. So this was actually a big, big platform basis that I took when, uh, I, I mentioned, on the last time that we spoke mm -hmm. uh, about the NFT project that I had mm -hmm. created. Mm -hmm. And so with the direction of that project, a lot of that relied on creating a place within the constantly developing world of technology for athletes to have a voice. So yeah, the, I, I would say that's a, a very big component, like you mentioned, where um, there are athletes that do partake in whatever sport as a means to survival. And I think that it be becomes this very odd, conflicting place when we do have conversations where we begin to say, it's okay to identify with something other than your sport. And especially for a lot of these athletes where at a professional level, they have finally established a sense of probably what is more normalcy for them, um, where you know, may maybe this was the means to getting them out of a situation where they could provide for their family and had a stable source of income and, you know, could, could do things that maybe prior to that they couldn't. Um, and, and so it's very interesting when they get to that position and then we say, okay, well you have to find your identity in more than just the sport you participate in. And they begin to branch out into that. And then the public eye shuts them down and says, Ooh, wait, 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 wait. I don't want you to talk about that because don't forget you're just a stupid athlete. So yes. you don't get to have that opinion. Yeah. And it goes, well, well, wait a minute. This is very contradicting to what I am trying to do. I'm trying to explore myself. I'm trying mm -hmm. to explore these other things that I could possibly have a voice in. But then they have this huge audience of people that love them when they're on the field or love them yeah. when they're on the court. But then the second that they begin to advocate for something that they truly believe in, mm -hmm. it's no, 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 no. Don't forget. You're just an athlete. I don't need you to think about this for mm -hmm. me. I need somebody else to think about this. It's very, very odd and very heinous to me that that, that is the shift in so many positions for for you know, across the board with athletes. Yeah, and how athletes and really any high-profile person in this world is becomes sort of beholden to the compartmentalization of humanity. Yes. Where it's, I want my sports people here, I want my smart people here, I want yeah. my politic people here, and there's no intersection. But this yeah. is a great segue into my next question. How do you think sports psychology intersects with sociology? And I'm thinking... Like everything that's happening with the NFL right now with the influx of the Rooney rule and um, how athletes and coaches are really starting to vocalize and stand up for social causes that may conflict with the larger narrative of the sport that they play. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that there is a there is a ton of psychology specifically sports psychology involved in what is happening with a lot of the shift of the attitudes and opinions about these things um 
like I said, the field of sports psychology in itself is relatively young. So, you know, a, a really good way to kind of look at the timeline of it is looking from a point of where physical activity was merely a means of survival to a point where it actually became recreational to then the point of the creation of things like the AAU or, you know, the installation of the Olympics and all of these very highly competitive atmospheres where you know, now physical activity is not just a means of labor and survival, but it is a means of activity and entertainment and recreation. And, um, you know, so along with that is the shift of the psychology around it. And then, you know, we can even take it it, using football as an easy example, because again, there's a lot happening around it in the world of sports right now. So we can take it from, you know, the, the years of Bear Bryant, where football was a very rough and tough sport. Uh, it was it, There was very much a, a system of assignment of roles of participation, um, and that both reflected on what was happening societally and in sport. But, you know, the world of sports, I would argue, is a lot like the world of pop culture, where you begin to see a lot of these people that do have platforms and voices. Um, let's look at Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was always somebody that was, I would argue, very... Um, well, very conversational for one thing. You know, he, he did a lot of things that brought attention to himself. But, you know, he also was a point for for fashion or for, you know, certain social trends at the time that that things begin to move within these upper echelon areas of people um, who do constantly have this attention on them. And I, I believe there's certainly this kind of matched cascade effect where then people in society begin to do a lot of those things. And so... You know, with what a lot of has been going on in the NFL as far as, uh, you know, pushes for social rights and, uh, you know, d- different points of, of equity within coaching and players' rights, you're, you're seeing a lot of these things happen concurrently in the nation as a whole. So I, I absolutely would argue that there is a huge intersect of components of psychology and how we can analyze uh, what what the players are feeling and going through, and then also what you can mirror as far as you know, if you were to take some sort of analysis of the you know psychological positions of people throughout the general population of the U.S. and even on a greater spectrum through the world, because sports has such an international audience, um, you know, it de- there there's definitely an intersect of it, and it's um, you know on on a, on a pretty deep. I mean, we could talk for hours on just that specifically of well where do we see these things that we would look for in athletes where do we see that intersect and overlay with what is currently happening with what i guess you could consider the general population Mm -hmm. you know and i think now too with how much access we have to people's lives both our own and each other's and then celebrity as well of or just athletes too it's i think especially now with college athletes starting to get sponsorship deals and um, this, again, full intersection of our culture of where psychology, sports, uh, sociology, and money all lie in. Because I think it's fascinating how psychology sort of follows the money, like most things. Because yeah. I think now, because more... More money is being pumped into athletes and into supporting athletes. Um, because of that, there is this desire from the athlete to explore or open up about honesty. I think, uh, again, using Simone Biles as the example, um, I think because now, A, she is the greatest athlete of all time. Like, one of the greatest athletes of all time. Yeah. Um, and because of that high profile, she has the ability and the platform to then talk about things that are important to her, i.e. her own mental health. Yeah. And then because she is sponsored and has this huge financial backing, there are people who are now financially invested in her. Yes. Ergo, financially invested in her mental health. Because yeah. if she is unable to show up because of something she's suffering from in that moment, people will be like, people will lose money. And so then there becomes this sort of financial obligation to support the psychology of athletes because we want them to constantly show up and constantly be the best version of themselves. Yeah. And I'm so excited that now 
the mental aspect, the mental health aspect of that yeah. is slowly starting to fall into the fold. Obviously, I think there was some sort of, there's still a lot of work, air quotes, or a lot of progress that can be made in that regard. But yeah. where do you see, where do you see sports psychology in five years? How do you, how do you think it'll Man, I mean, change the, the it, way in which we do sports? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly hope to consider that it's going to continue to evolve to be something that it is more and more commonplace to talk about and that we continue to educate coaches and staff members and create a space where athletes feel like they have a voice to talk about, um, you know, mental health. And, mm -hmm. and, and this, this both ties into how we approach coaching as coaches mm -hmm. to be able to help the athlete in a performance standpoint mm -hmm. and also how we approach it from a, you know, general just well-being standpoint, mm -hmm. making sure that the athletes are okay. You know, I, I think, uh, there are tons of programs and tons of, you know, teams that are already getting to a position where they do have access to sports psychologists and they do have access to resources. But I think I, I hope that it continues to be so that in mm -hmm. the next five years, it continues to be something that at, at every level of sport, not just for the pro, not just for, you know, the athlete that is playing somewhere, you know, in, in the NCAA world, but that in high school and in middle school, uh, we, open the floor to be able to provide something like that for these athletes. Because again, at, at such an early developmental age, mm -hmm. that is where these things are occurring, mm -hmm. you know? So yes, it does help tremendously to have these resources for the athletes that are performing under so much stress. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that every peewee team needs a sports psychologist, but yeah. what I do think <laughs> is that what, what I do hope is that there, uh, you know, is a, and and honestly, it, when, when you look at the timeline of sports and participation, mm -hmm. I hope that we get back to the way that it was where it was being done for the sense of enjoyment. Obviously, mm -hmm. the world of sports, it, you know, is a billion dollar industry at this point, And I don't really see that changing. But I do hope that we can get back to some sense of highlighting the fact that athletes are also people. Mm -hmm. And then especially in, you know, the, the ages of young children and adolescents mm -hmm. and as they continue to grow and develop into these young adults that we encourage them to develop as people mm -hmm. and also, you know, understand that their worth and their value is not solely in the success that they achieve in their sport. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, this is a very important component of it too, but from the parents and mm -hmm. from the coaches that are involved in this, letting your child and letting your young athlete participate and not completely, you know, controlling everything that happens about the sport. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's too many examples of, you know, for me with a lot of my friends growing up, my, my parents were incredibly encouraging, mm -hmm. incredibly facilitating for things that I wanted to do. Um, I, I can't think of an activity that I was told, no, you're not going to do that. You're mm -hmm. not allowed to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that that continues to be something that develops and evolves and that we see that more and more of a commonplace thing so that, you know, children are not, you know, held to the fire for not scoring a goal in their peewee soccer game or, you know, not, not getting enough base hits or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, if I was held to that standard growing up in sports, I would have been eviscerated. I Yeah, and many uh, kids grow yeah. to resent it. Yeah. Very passionately. I immensely so. I think when I was playing t-ball, my dad would tell me the story of he would be watching the game and he'd look out and see me in the outfield and I was um, squatting down picking grass. Just like... Enjoying your time. Enjoying out. my time. And I think that, especially this idea of like, oh, rah, 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 why does everyone get a participation trophy? What happened to winners and losers? It's like, we got to move past that idea. I, I want to move past the idea of sure there is winners and losers in the yeah. context or in the container of the game yeah. but the overall celebration that everyone who participated played and like yeah. had the joy and i think that's a big i i i'm really glad you brought that up because that is a big cross section mm -hmm. because 
there is a lot of value to be placed in understanding the difference between winning and losing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of value within that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from certain sentiments, I do agree with not everybody can be a winner, mm-hmm. but what what you also said along with that is important, the fact that there needs to be a sense of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's not fun to lose, mm-hmm. but you can absolutely be a good coach and a good parent and not shame the child for yes. lack of what you would consider to be ideal performance. Yeah. You know, and and so it, it it does go very hand in hand with facilitating the development mm-hmm. of a young athlete um, where you understand the excitement and the enjoyment of winning. Mm-hmm. And you also understand, you know, part of that, you know, lack of fun mm-hmm. with losing something yeah. um, because they, they're both very important developmental experiences. Yes. And yes, not everybody can be a winner because mm-hmm. in, in a similar sense to only valuing your performance, it paints a similarly dangerous picture yeah. where now as I go about doing things that I do, especially as I'm trying to develop my identity and other things other than sports, mm-hmm. if I understand that I win at everything that I do, no matter how I do, that is a dangerous idea to hold yeah. because that's not how it is. Yes. That it, you can't be a winner in everything you do. And that similarly is going to present dangerous issues with people as they develop in, again into functioning adults where, wait a minute. Well, I was taught at a young age that mm-hmm. It didn't matter how I did, I was going to win. Well, yeah. no, that's not the case. But your success is not where your value as a person is mm-hmm. held. That's where that line is yeah. very hard to delineate. And it creates this cognitive dissonance of polarized thinking. Yeah. Because if you would still in young people and young athletes, there are winners and losers then we start to create this this or that on or off yes polarizing thought process for everything yeah and i think where i would want to see sports psychology grow into from a coaching perspective yeah. is conscious language and a one to one with understanding that every single athlete will receive information in a completely different way because they yeah. are their own individual human. And so developing and fostering that ability to both communicate to a group an idea of, hey, there are winners and people who have not won yet. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like if you go and play a game and the team scores six goals and you score four goals, cool. We didn't win this one, but we can win the next one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's, that, that, defi- that attitude of... That attitude of continuing to push and mm-hmm. being resilient—that that is a huge component to mm-hmm. it. You know, not and and that I mean that's why I, I would. It's so hard to be an excellent coach mm-hmm. because it's also hard as a coach to not become so involved with the idea of your own successes mm-hmm. that you know if if you suffer a single loss you have to be able to responsibly take a step back and, and and this definitely shifts as you begin to grow and develop and depending on how you're coaching your sport, you know, Mm -hmm. your four year old athlete does need a different style of coaching than your 18 year old athlete. Mm -hmm. But along with that, you know, that loss may be on you as a coach. Mm Mm-hmm. So can you own that? Can you accept that? Can you reflect on that? Can you take responsibility and ownership for that? And can you go on to the next game? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, can you encourage these athletes to understand that um, running into adversity Mm -hmm. does not mean that you are inherently a loser? And it it also does not mean that you should quit and give up. Yes. Because there are a lot of things within this life that are hard and that are mm-hmm. challenging. And you mm-hmm. are not going to, if, if you manage to live a life where you face zero adversity, yeah. I honestly feel sorry for you. Yes. If you have never in any sense had to endure the trials of facing an adverse situation, how sad yeah. because there is so much growth that occurs from that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it absolutely is, is being able to take a group of athletes and say, you know what? We worked hard and we did this and this and this well. And mm-hmm. the outcome was not what we wanted, but we're not going to stop doing what we do. And we're going to find ways to improve and we're going to highlight the things that we did well. And guess what? 
you, after you step off of this field, are still an important individual and mm-hmm. you still matter. Yes. And you you do not have to sit here and feel such a horrible weight of dejection because, you know, I, I and it's hard. I, I get it as an athlete. Mm-hmm. The, the I'm going to take the weight of this on my shoulders mm-hmm. um, and make it my personal responsibility to perform better. But we're taught that. We are taught that, yeah. hey, if you if you fail, it's your fault. So you have to make something better. But when we look at premier tip of the top 0.0001% athletes, they have coaches, teams of coaches, people, nutritionists, sport psychologists, sport, a whole teams of people whose goal is to help them, them is to help them win. Yeah. Help them do the goal, set the goal and perform. Yeah. And even still at those levels, Winning doesn't always happen. Yeah. And so then if you can bring that down even to high school, collegiate, little league levels, there are so many factors that go into the game. Yeah. How did you sleep? How did you eat? What is what is your what is your psychological state going into this game? Exactly. Like, and that's that is why you know that that is why I said when you would ask kind of where where do I hope to see this? I hope Mm -hmm. that it continues to funnel down into you know into the youngest of youth leagues that Mm -hmm. play and perform any sport or activity. I hope that the you know the field of sports psychology continues to have an effect on how coaching occurs especially Mm -hmm. at these levels because it is so fundamental Mm -hmm. you know i i think right now part of the issue is that we're we're getting a great opportunity to talk about it Mm -hmm. but we're not at a point yet where we're going to continue to see drastic change Mm -hmm. throughout the entirety of sport because i don't know that i can definitively say that it is happening at the you know most entry of entry points for for any of these activities and that is really where this has to begin Mm -hmm. happening so that as these people grow and develop they can take these tools they can take this understanding and continue to apply it to how they approach sport Mm -hmm. but also how they approach life yeah and i think we're where we're at now is a beginning of a shift away but still entrenched in this sort of like hazing mindset or the it this is how I was taught, and so I will yeah. I will teach you in the way that I was taught. Yeah. Without the realization that maybe I wasn't I was taught in a way that's psychologically unhealthy. Yeah, or or just in a in a general sense, just not optimal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there, there there could abs- absolutely be you know variables that you're missing. I I, yeah. I agree completely that there. Uh, yeah, there is there is certainly a stubbornness to the world of coaching. Um, you know, where, well, it's always been done this way and it's going to keep happening this way. And that's the way that it happens. And, uh, you know, I think part of the issue is also that many of these areas where that occurs, they use a very specific outlier of success to mm-hmm. justify a whole group when in reality it, it should be absolutely the other way. And yeah, sure. You will, yeah. I'm sure you will have one or two people in any subset group that is mm-hmm. going to perform extraordinarily well. And they probably were going to perform extraordinarily well under any condition, yeah. but let's actually look at the rest of the population <laughs> and get an idea for how performance across the board is occur- occurring. Yeah. Because if, only two people out of your 100 are doing well. Well, that is not a very good That's, data point to hold your <laughs> to hold your weight on, you know. So, yes. what is actually happening with that? Yeah, and I think we're on like the precipice of growth in sports or growth in change. I yeah. think too of like where if we're using football as the example, yeah. where the sport of football was 50 years ago. If yeah. we if we didn't change the way the sport was 50 years ago, we would still be using, you know, Leather helmets. Leather helmets <laughs> and running plays that would just cause serious bodily harm to people yeah. for the sake of this sport. But I think now, because the level, I was listening to something, um, um, an athlete being interviewed, and he was saying that any athlete now could go back 50 years and play and play yeah. pro ball. But no athlete from 50 years ago could jump to the now and play professional. And, that, and, and I'll tell you this much, that yeah. continues to evolve beyond psychology. You know, yeah. when, when we when you begin talking about that, you're talking about the the shift of actual sports science, yeah. you know, and how, 
you look at the people that set the you know initial track and field records and you look at people that used to run on cinders and and well what were the shoes made of and how, well and how were they actually running and it, mm-hmm. it, it all falls into an understanding of biomechanics and exercise physiology and all these different variables that we play with now and yeah. now you've got runners like Kipchoge who yeah is you know the the best marathon runner in history and how he's you know on his road to break the two-hour marathon barrier but you know how that that field constantly shifts and Mm -hmm. and, yeah and so it's very interesting balancing that component and and also doing a good job of balancing the world of psychology where you know we we create an environment that is understanding and that is healthy but it also maintains the competitive edge because you'll Mm -hmm. also speak to a lot of athletes and when you look at certain regulations within the NFL, especially mm-hmm. that in the last seven or eight years have been very harshly, um, you know, put into play, a lot of people, uh, you know, you hear the argument, well, th- the sport is becoming soft. Mm-hmm. And it's, okay, well, how do we balance both the physical and psychological aspect of sport mm-hmm. and still allow it to maintain its competitive edge and still keep it to what I think many would consider primal in mm-hmm. nature, uh, where, you know, a lot, a lot of sports do have a sort of combative edge. You know, there, there's a lot of hormones to be accounted for and there's a, there's a very big push just in the sense of physicality, you know, that, that is part of the excitement of sport. Mm -hmm. So it's how do you maintain the excitement for the athlete and how do you maintain a certain degree of enjoyment for the spectator Mm -hmm. while also considering that the athlete is a person and not endangering them. You know, you, you, you begin playing this very hard balancing act where it's like, okay, well, we, we want to talk about mental health and we want to talk about emotions, but we don't want to talk about it too much in the public eye because then people get turned off by sports. And so, yeah, you, you, you're, you play a very hard game with it. And I'm I'm lucky that I am in no position where I have <laughs> any any sort of sway whatsoever so I can freely voice my opinion without yeah. any repercussion. I say let sports become soft. Let football become soft because I would rather a soft sport than countless countless deaths from CTEs and just yeah, and the the lingering the lingering effects on psychological health from physical injury and and the other the hard thing too is it so then you start considering the position of participation Mm -hmm. you know it's it becomes the balance of well we can't retract so much that the athletes don't enjoy it because remember they're the ones who sign up for it yeah so then you have to play this game where okay well if we look at the consensus of the athlete Mm -hmm. what is the what is the level of reasonable you know, risk yeah. where, yeah, I understand what I'm doing. I understand that I'm inflicting harm to my body and I don't care because I enjoy doing this. And so how do we balance that with exactly what you're talking about mm-hmm. with these, I mean, very high injury rates, but I, I, again, to take a very specific example of football with the, mm-hmm. with the, you know, analysis of the occurrence of CTE, mm-hmm. it's like, well, that that's a horrible thing f- to watch a lot of these people go through, especially yeah. as they begin to age and deal with the repercussion of that, mm-hmm. you know? And so even within the NFL, you hear a lot of these players argue. It's like, well, I knew what I signed up for mm-hmm. and I did what I love and that's what I have to pay for it. Yeah. And, and yeah. So how, how do you balance that and make it, make it a world that is still safe to participate in, but still exciting. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think it's a decision to be made amongst a lot of people. You know, yeah. there, luckily there are fantastic scientists and fantastic psychologists that understand much more about this than I do, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, that are constantly a- assessing how to. Again, I, I, I use the word optimize. Yeah. How how do we optimize this? How do we optimize? the psychology of it mm-hmm. and the physicality of it and the performance aspect and how do we keep all of it in a proper balance where yeah. people aren't just inherently ruining themselves but also are able to keep a certain level of excitement to participation yeah there is that visceral sweet spot because we love i think sports will always exist in a human capacity and i don't think there will ever be either like ar or vr sport or not that not that not entirely it. not yeah. an entire replacement because there is something entirely visceral and human about watching 
people do these amazing things in yeah. reality and seeing like an actual person do that. And that's incredible. But then I always think it's always this really, really amazing game, like football, especially it's always really impactful, really powerful. Then there's that one hit that's always like a little too hard. Yeah. And it just completely sucks the entire, it or it shifts yeah. the entire energy of the whole game. Like yeah. you watch a, like a career ending injury or a career ending hit happened to someone on field and it completely, I, hmm. and there's a lot of psychology for the athlete coming back yeah. from that. I mean, there are, there are athletes that physically recover from injuries that mm -hmm. never psychologically recover from it. And yeah, and that, that in itself is a very big component of reintegrating athletes back into the competitive world to say, you know, acknowledging that, okay, a ACL injuries are a really one to over, uh, mm -hmm. to like point out as an example, because, uh, yeah, many people physically overcome it, you know? And so, yes, you undergo that operation, but you know, you, you look at a, almost a phenomena of watching athletes that physically undergo the procedure to repair an ACL and they mm -hmm. undergo their rehab and they start getting back into training protocol, but, but they never quite play the same. And a yeah. lot of that falls on the aspect of psychology and how having a great sports psychologist can actually make a hundred percent of the difference of mm -hmm. taking an athlete that is now terrified to cut, terrified mm -hmm. of very quick change of direction yeah. and making them feel like they did when they were initially playing because there, there absolutely is a sense of fearlessness when you are, uh, you know, playing soccer or playing yeah. football or playing whatever sport, you know, basketball mm -hmm. and, you know, are, are on a breakaway or you're, you know, tearing down the field and, you know, th there's a shift in that feeling of, oh my gosh, well now I have to be very considerate of this injury. And that, that comes from a very, you know, primal part of our own bodies that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't argue, I wouldn't say that the human body is made for performance or for optimization, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, well, the, the human body is made for optimization of, you know, if you look at people that undergo some sort of injury, well, if not seen after most times, there's going to be some process of adaptation that occurs, you know, yeah. you might have a limp or you might stop turning or moving a certain way. So mm -hmm. it's like, how do we, get away from that for the athlete and help yeah. them mentally pass that hurdle to feel safe performing. Yeah. And I think it becomes difficult higher and higher or more and more intense. The sport output yeah. um, becomes because yeah. I think for elite level athletes, when injuries happen like that, it becomes that much harder to then g get returned to that sort of level, coupled with the idea that for every day that you are healing is another day that your peak performance is slipping away yeah. for, in terms of age, in terms of growing on all that yeah. extra information. But then I think if bringing it down to even just a general population of understanding that pain is pain is a part of the process or right. pain pain is something that will inevitably happen to all of us in our training or in our sport in yeah. one capacity or another because of factors that we have absolutely no control over um, chance divine intervention fate <laughs> yeah. whatever you want to call it that these things will then put into place where physical pain will happen and yeah. so then that's where, yeah, I think sports psychology can really play a huge growth factor yes. in getting beyond these compensations and getting beyond the idea that, oh, I twisted, like, the what's that old, or like the meme of, oh, I'm 30 now, so I twisted my ankle three weeks ago, and it's never going to be the same yeah, ever yeah. again. Yeah, um, that stigma. Yeah, yeah, the stigma of like, oh, I, I rolled my ankle, so now I'm going to have a limp for the rest of my life or something like that. Yeah. And being able to psychologically analyze the fact that pain happens and then how can I then um, mentally and psychologically move around or move through that pain so that understanding that pain is no longer the limiting factor pain is information of yeah. like yeah yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's a huge part of training you know mm -hmm. that's part of I think what makes training um, I, I mean I would I would even consider it not odd yeah. to some component but it but it's but it's super necessary is that it does expose you to these small amounts of discomfort and, mm -hmm. you know, then allows your body to receive that feedback mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, bookmark that and say, okay, well, I understand what 
discomfort at this capacity feels like. Yeah. You know? So you, you have an opportunity to say, well, this is truly pain. And I mean, that, that in itself is also a huge psychological hurdle to mm -hmm. be able to deal with is mm -hmm. saying, okay, is this pain? What, what is pain? Mm -hmm. Or is this discomfort? Yes. Am I, am I a little dis uh, uncomfortable? You know, mm -hmm. is, is my body being pushed through? I mean, for, for resistance training, you know, am I just being, you know, subjected to a stimulus that is making my muscle, you know, causing these micro tears in my muscle that yeah. is making me uncomfortable or, oh my gosh, did I just dislocate my shoulder? This hurts. <laughs> my arm's on the ground. Is this pain or discomfort? <laughs> hmm. I should speak to my sports psychologist. Hmm. Let's see. I dropped a 300-pound barbell on my head. Is this pain or discomfort? <laughs> um, yeah. So, and as to not gatekeep this information, and so people are saying, well, sports psychology is all well and good, but I'm not a sports psychologist, and I don't know any sports psychologists. What is... What is something that our listeners can take f right now and start implementing into their own sport practices or athletic activities that is psychologically driven that can help them perform better. Ooh, that's a good one. Cause there, there really is a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, Man, we, we hit on this a lot today, but mm -hmm. I would say particularly if you are, you know, especially if you are in a competitive sphere of athletics and, and you aren't just your run of the mill recreational exerciser who is just doing this for general fitness, mm -hmm. I would don't solely highlight your value in the success of an activity. Mm-hmm. Yes, that success is rewarding and it feels good, but you know I, I would attempt to highlight the enjoyment of what you're doing, and don't make your actions solely reward based. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, you're uh, especially if you want to look at longevity of competitiveness. Yes, you know, if you are an athlete who is only participating in what you're doing because you want to win, mm -hmm. and there's nothing else about that experience that you are truly enjoying, you need to find something else. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and I would truly argue that you, with what you are doing, make it your point to find something about the process of training mm -hmm. that you truly enjoy. Yeah. You know, yes. I, like I, I yes. would say, you know, if you look at, you know, a, a high school football season, you, know, mm -hmm. you may only have, you know, 13 games or 14 or 15 games, whatever that is, contingent on whatever the playoff cycle looks like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and also what, what level you play at, what district, mm -hmm. all, all these things considered. But yep. again... Yes, the game days are fun and they're exciting, but you may only have 15 of those every season. Mm -hmm. And if you only play eight years of that sport, that's 120 days to look forward to. That's a very short lifetime to I'm enjoy. so impressed with your mental math. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a short lifetime to enjoy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Don't make it about the game day. Mm -hmm. Yes, the game day is fun. Yes, the game day is exciting. But yep. make it about everything else. Mm -hmm. The laughter, the friendship, the memories, the training, and, and everything that comes with that. Mm -hmm. I would say for general population, reevaluate your relationship to failure. Yeah. How do you navigate? What does failure feel like to you? Yeah. How do you navigate that when it happens? And how can you reevaluate to understand that failure is not the end. Failure is a step. And failure is a, is, is a part of the process. Yes. Failure is, and it should be a part of the process. Yes. And there is much to be said about how important the process of failing at something is, mm -hmm. but more so the response to it. Yes. Everybody is going to fail, mm -hmm. but how, how, how willing are you to, assess failure, accept it, and then go beyond that to improve. Yeah. That, that is a huge part. And this is the, if you're, uh, for me, working out fitness is the perfect place to explore failure. Because yes. if I fail here, the only person that 
suffers from that failure is me, and that's great. And then yeah. it's only ultimately something that is only serving me because yes. I'm training for myself and training for this. And so if I fail, then I'm just failing me. And that's so easy because then I can navigate that failure in a healthy way yep. so that in other aspects of my life, if and when failure happens, I know how to respond to it so that I'm not um, ultimately hurting myself and hurting other people by how I respond to that failure. Right. Yeah. Yes. Nick, thank you so much. Mitch, thank this, you so much. This has been a fantastic episode. It has. Uh, be sure to follow Nick Height at Nick Height underscore, right? Nick uh, underscore height. Nick Nick dot height underscore. Okay. Yes. Take <coughs> two. Um, be sure to follow Nick Height on social media at Nick dot height underscore, and be sure to follow me at Mitch underscore is underscore Mitch underscore is, um, and at Fort Worth Strong FTW Strong for all of your Fort Worth Strong updates, videos, podcasts, recipes how to's how not to's you can you can go i'll just keep going yeah. <laughs> yes uh, um uh, uh weaving both b basket and bobbing and weaving boxing style yeah we'll keep rolling keep no you you, you can go nick it's okay uh, it, 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 it's fine it's fine um let's see what else can fort strong teach you fort strong can teach you the power of yes and the power of positivity and how to utilize the gym in a way that is more substantial and beneficial to your life and to your healthiness um yes i could sit here all day long and talk to all of you but alas like all good things we must come to an end thank you so much for listening have a wonderful day i love you thanks for listening i said that okay well now i don't really know how to end this so goodbye goodbye